All right, we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 4, or you can follow along there in the Version Bible app. Let me just uh, open us up in prayer and invite the Spirit to speak to us today. So Lord, that's what we ask is for your Spirit to teach our hearts and to to help us to understand your kingdom better and to help us understand the gospel better so that we can serve you um, as our king, so that we can know you, and uh, so that we can worship you and love you better. So please, Lord, um, just speak to us through your word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I don't use Twitter, really. I don't know. I think I've talked about that before. I have a Twitter account, but I only opened it to follow uh, there was a pastor um, who got cancer, and he was giving updates on Twitter. And so I started a Twitter account just to follow him and see how he was doing. But other than that, I never really used Twitter. I don't completely understand it. Let's be real. I'm not Twitter people. But what I do know is Twitter, the idea is that you can tweet like short. Uh, you know, it, It's short. I think the character limit I Googled is like 240 characters. I think they said it used to be less, and then they lengthened it. Um, but that's the idea, right, is these... These short little tweets. It's kind of like the opposite of one of my favorite subreddits. Uh, It's called Food for Thought. And on Food for Thought, what they do is they post long-form articles. It's sort of the opposite of Twitter. So Twitter is meant to get ideas across very quickly, right? It's like um, I had a friend who was in advertising, and he said to me once, he was asking me about the church, and he said, what's the elevator pitch? For what you're doing. And I said, well, the kingdom of God doesn't really have an elevator pitch, you know, um, but that's kind of the idea with Twitter. How can you take something that's expansive and big and shrink it into 240 characters, right? Into something super short. Um, food for thought, on the other hand, is these long form articles and then the comments people are debating and, uh, you know, it, it's a little more uh, complicated, right? So the world, though, the world is complicated. Issues have nuance. Now, uh, I think... That's why I think <laughs> Twitter can cause a lot of problems. You know, not that Twitter's all bad, right? There's a lot of good things about Twitter and people get news, you know, different stuff. But one of the one of the hard parts is it's hard to, to, to condense these complicated, nuanced ideas into these 240 characters. And it's, you know, we see these problems all in the world, right? Uh, now, I think the reason I bring this up is because I want to say I think that we have done the same thing with the gospel message, right? We have Twittered it, right? Uh, Let's see if we can take this vast, expansive, wonderful story about the work of God and get it down into one sentence, one quick little idea. Today, uh, what we're going to see is how Jesus sort of describes the work of the Messiah, how Jesus describes the kingdom of God, how he describes the gospel. And remember, we're reading Luke. The reason we're reading Luke is because we want to be challenged to serve King Jesus the way that he presents himself in this book. Not the way that we wish he would be or what we would want him to be to build him into our image, but to read this book and let him mold us into his image. And so just a quick recap of what we've read so far, if you're just jumping in, uh, what we've read in the book of Luke is that Jesus was born. You know, there's all the infancy narrative, the prophecy, the virgin birth, Jesus's birth, John's birth. We read about Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, Last week, we read about the temptation of Christ. So Jesus versus Satan and this battle in the wilderness. And so now that is over and now he begins his ministry. But to set this up, um, I want to say we have to remember the gospel of Luke is not in perfect chronological order. Uh, Both Matthew and Mark tend to 
follow a more chronological order. John and Luke are more topically oriented, although Luke less so than John. Um, Matthew and Mark place this incident here that we're going to read today, this text, uh, in the middle of Jesus's ministry. But Luke has taken this out of what was probably chronologically in the middle of Jesus's three, three and a half year ministry and moved it to the beginning. Why? Because this incident, he wants this incident specifically to to set the tone for all that we're going to read about the ministry of Jesus um, and how Jesus describes the kingdom of God here and the work of the Messiah, how he describes the gospel. Luke wants us to take that and apply it to the rest of the story. John does the same thing when he starts Jesus's ministry. At the very beginning, he takes the wedding at Cana, right? The water into wine and it's not my hour and Jesus is moving towards his hour as the whole theme of the one of the major themes of the book of John. Luke does it here with the theme of what is the gospel? What is the kingdom of God? So let's start here. Um, We are going to read verses uh, 14 and we're going to keep going. Uh, So let's start here in verse 14. Um, And Jesus Uh, uh, Sorry, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. So again, do you see this theme here of Jesus being empowered by the Holy Spirit? Luke keeps emphasizing this. He was conceived by the Spirit. John was filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. You know, Jesus had the Spirit descend on him like a dove at the baptism. Last week, um, we were told that Jesus, at the temptation, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led into the wilderness to the temptation. Now, he's in the power of the Holy Spirit, it says. So the battle with the devil last time didn't uh, didn't dampen the spirit in Jesus's life. In fact, that battle and that temptation, like we talked about, it strengthened Jesus's faith and his dependence on the Father. Uh, Philip Ryken, the author and pastor, said this, the power of God's spirit is accessible, I love this, to anyone who comes to God in faith, but Jesus possessed it in a unique way and in the fullest measure. And so this is why Luke keeps emphasizing the Holy Spirit. He does this in the book of Luke. He does this in the book of Acts. The power of the Spirit that Jesus had perfectly is available to all of God's people. And so what we read Jesus here, he's kind of setting the example for how we should live in the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus begins his ministry uh, by going around the, the area of Galilee. Now, Galilee was... You know, we, we, I, Mackenzie, sorry, but we always here in San Francisco, right? We make fun of the South, you know, the rednecks and all that stuff. Uh, Galilee, even though it was in the north of Israel, was kind of like the redneck part of, um, of, uh, Israel back in the day, right? So imagine hearing about the next, you know, it was kind of a nothing area, right? Nothing came from here. Imagine hearing about the next great tech startup. And you're like, oh, yeah, where are they based? And then they're like, oh, they're in Wyoming or I don't know where, you know, like uh, northern Louisiana, something like that. And you'd be like, nah, I don't think so. Right. That's where Jesus is setting up camp to start his ministry, not in Jerusalem, not in the center where everything is happening, uh, but in Galilee up north uh, in the redneck part of Israel. And so as he's going around Galilee, it says that the report about him. Uh, the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So Jesus is gaining fame. Now, remember, this is not chronological. So Jesus is getting famous, doing all the stuff that the other gospels talk about actually happened before this incident. Um, but it's all, the first whole part of his ministry happens um, And basically, Jesus' ministry worked like this. It started in Galilee. He made a few trips to Jerusalem and stuff. But uh, the book of Luke presents it as he's slowly moving down towards Jerusalem. So it will end in Holy Week in Jerusalem. All right. So verse 15. 
Um, and he taught in their synagogues. Okay, so understanding the synagogue is going to be a key part of the book of Luke. We have to remember that this, these stories, um, these true stories, right, this history that we're reading was not the history of America. This is not Western culture. And so for us Westerners to understand this book uh, and the Gospel of Luke especially, we have to put ourselves into the world of the Gospels. And we have to understand as much about the history as we can so that we can kind of understand what it is that's going on here. And so as we go through the book of Luke, I'm going to do my best to try to explain a bunch of this stuff. So synagogue is going to be key to understanding a lot of the book of Luke. Now, here's here's what happened. Sometime after the exile in 586 B.C., uh, to five, what would that be? Five sixteen, I think, was when they built the temple and kind of came back. Um, so right after the exile in five sixteen, kind of ended, um, synagogues started popping up all over. And uh, they don't know the exact history of the synagogue. There's argument. Some people say they started a little before the exile. Most people say they started somewhere after the exile. But the synagogue. Um, was sort of a gathering of Jewish people. And a lot of how we do church together um, as followers of Jesus was built on the foundation of synagogues. So a lot of the ideas that the apostles took was they just took some of the stuff from the synagogues and they put it into how they organized the church. And here's how it went. Any city with, I think it was 12 Jewish males, was required to have a synagogue meet. And sometimes there were cities that were too small. I'm trying to remember what city was it that Paul went to. Was it Philippi? No. I don't remember. He went to some city, and there wasn't even enough people there for a synagogue. So he went down to the river and met some uh, women who were there praying. Anyway, so any city with 12 males was supposed to have the synagogues. Sometimes these synagogues were formal buildings. Sometimes they met in houses. Um, At this time, around the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, there were 480 different synagogues. Um, Now, the synagogue wasn't, though, a temple replacement. You didn't go to the synagogue to do your sacrifices and uh, for your festivals and all that kind of stuff. This wasn't a temple replacement. It was sort of like a community center, sort of like what we would call a church. Um, In each community, right, it was, I guess, not only the church, it was the center of the community life. And um, to be thrown out of the synagogue didn't just mean like, oh, I can't go to church anymore. It meant to be completely kicked out of the community. And so these synagogues were organized. They had offices just like we do in uh, churches. So they had the head of the synagogue, which is kind of like what we would call a senior pastor, except this guy didn't, he was more organizational. Maybe it's what we would call a um, executive pastor. He didn't always do the teaching. The second group of leaders was the elders, which was a group of men, and uh, the the head of the synagogue would have been one of these elders as well. So there was sort of this board of elders who really ran things. And then the third office was what they called an attendant. I think this is pretty cool. So this guy's main responsibility was taking care of the scriptures, uh, the scrolls of the scriptures that each synagogue would have had. Now think about how cool that is. Uh, Think about how spoiled we are too, right? Like I... I think I counted at one point I have over 100 Bibles. Don't tell Melissa, right? I have a lot of Bibles. Uh, fancy, not fancy, all different versions, couple of languages. I have a Swedish Bible from like the 1800s. Anyway, I have a lot of Bibles. I'm, we're spoiled. But back in the day, printing was very expensive. And copying a set of the Torah or the prophets, um, right, or the writings, that stuff was pretty expensive to do. So the, the synagogue would have copies of this stuff that people could come and read, but everybody didn't have this stuff at their house. So if you wanted to read your Old Testament, you had to go down to the synagogue and do it. And there was a guy, the attendant, his main job was to take care of that stuff. He was sort of like the 
like the sacred librarian or whatever. I think it's kind of cool. This guy also had the job of blowing the trumpet each Friday night to announce to the town that it was officially the start of Sabbath. So we have these three offices. I mean, this will come into play. You'll see this also in the book of Acts and in, um, you know, the, the, the gospel of Luke here. Um, but we have these three offices. You have the elders who were kind of in charge of everything. One of those elders was called the head of the synagogue, who's like a lead pastor kind of. And we had the attendant who took care of the scrolls. Now, um, as they would gather for a Sabbath service, this is sort of the, it wasn't lock, you know, it wasn't, um, written down anywhere that this was exactly how they did it. Just like, um, for our, church services. Every church service is a little bit different, but they're all pretty similar. So the basic order of a synagogue service went something like this, pretty close to this. They would open with a thanksgiving or a blessing. Um, Then there would be a public prayer. Then somebody would get up and read a passage from the Torah. Somebody would get up and read a passage from the prophets. Then there would be a sermon delivered. Now, these sermons were often done by the elders or the head of the synagogue, but also often it would be done by a guest preacher. And so Paul really took advantage of this um, as a method of outreach. Remember, Paul was trained by this famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And so Paul had some like serious credentials, right, as a pastor or as a pastor, as a um, as a Pharisee, right, as a rabbi. And so Paul would go to these synagogues and he would walk in, he'd put on all his clothes and everybody would go, oh, that guy, you know, we really, this is an important guy has come to visit our synagogue. So of course they would invite Paul to get up and teach. And then he would get up and uh, he'd tell them about the resurrection and then they would beat him or stone him to death and throw him outside, you know, and then he'd come back to life, you know, all the stuff we read about in Acts. But Paul took advantage of this idea that guest preachers, guest rabbis were often called to stand up and preach. Um, This is what Jesus will do here in our text today. And then after the sermon, there was a benediction by a priest if one was available. So if there was a priest uh, in the synagogue, he would get up and he would do the benediction. If not, then there was a different kind of closing prayer that the priest, uh, because only the priests were allowed to do these special kind of benedictions. Okay, so Jesus then, what he's doing is he's also taking advantage of this guest preaching stuff, just like Paul did. Paul would do later on. And so Jesus is going around Galilee, and there are hundreds of synagogues in the region of Galilee. And he is going around, and he's walking in, and he's uh, sort of the guest rabbi who's getting up to preach. And as he's preaching, right, everyone is blown away by his teaching. Look at the rest of verse 15. It says, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what does that mean to be glorified? Basically, it means praise. The word glory means to give something weight in your life. And so Jesus now is growing in popularity because he's such a phenomenal teacher. I love that that thing, you know, they always say, pastors always kind of joke about, that God only had one son and he made him a preacher. It's pretty cool. All right, this is what Jesus did. He went around, he traveled, and he was the world's greatest preacher. And it says that all... Um, He was being glorified by all. Now, does that mean literally everyone? No, this is sort of hyperbolic language, right? This is hyperbole. Um, We see a lot of opposition to Jesus's ministry. Even at this point, there was opposition to Jesus's ministry. Remember, the Bible was written in the style of the times and in the specific time and place. And so we can't over-literalize some of these words in the script. This just means like, oh man, you know how we would say Just everybody was blown away by Jesus. All right, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
he moved to Egypt for a little while as a baby, and then they went back, and he grew up in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, again, was kind of a nothing town. Even in the area of Galilee, which was sort of the redneck part, this was the town, even in that section, that nobody cared about. Um, if Jesus hadn't been born here, nobody would have ever heard of Nazareth. Um, David Garland said this, the village, talking about Nazareth, uh, the village is estimated to have had a population of less than 400 and to have been uh, quite poor since es- excavations have uncovered no paved streets, public structures and inscriptions, or fine pottery. Basically, they dug up Nazareth from the time of Jesus, and it was all mud huts and poverty. And this is where Jesus grew up. So this town of less than 400 people, um, you can imagine in a town of 400 people, everybody knows each other. Um, The rest of verse 16. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So this was his custom. Jesus did this his whole life. This is where his faith grew, was in the synagogue. This is where um, he read and he learned the Torah. He learned the prophets and the writing. This is where Jesus studied the scriptures. He probably spent time here as a boy. Remember we talked about Jesus as a boy with his phenomenal knowledge of the scriptures and how he was learning. This is probably where a lot of that happened. And here's the thing. Jesus... As we read the Gospels, we have, I'll say this a bunch of different times. Jesus is not just a great example to follow. Um, he's our Savior. He's our King. He's so much more than an example to follow. But it doesn't mean he, he's not an example, right? He is. He, as we read the life of Jesus, we should try to emulate him and look at his custom. His custom was to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. One of the things that really bugs me over the years about being a pastor is how easily the body of Christ The most important thing that any of us are really a part of uh, gets pushed aside for soccer practice or we're going to Tahoe this weekend or it's become for a lot of people church ends up being one of the options of things that I could do on a weekend but if something even mildly more interesting comes along uh, you know I'm gonna ditch church and you know not to say you have to be at church every week but the idea is Jesus gave these synagogue services wait in his life. And that's what we should be doing too. We should be giving church, even though we can't meet together right now, but we should be giving this body and this community uh, and this church plant weight in our lives because uh, it's what's helped. Church is what helps mold us and shape us. And so Jesus is there. He's at his home synagogue. Um, I'll tell you real quick. I was a pastor for a bunch of years. 13 years I was on staff, I think, and three and change. I was the lead pastor um, of the church that I grew up in. And uh, one of the amazing things about that church was how supportive they were of me in pastoral ministry. Now, um, like I have a... Um, I don't know if you're watching this, Brenda. I don't know if she watches ours. But uh, Brenda Bowen is a good friend of ours. And she was my, I want to say, fourth grade... Um, fourth grade uh, Sunday school teacher. And she taught me the book of Samuel back when I was in fourth grade. So David and Goliath and Saul. I remember Saul chasing David around and all those stories. Well, then as an adult, as the pastor, I taught that book to the congregation. And it was really amazing how many people like Brenda were open to hear the word of God preached, even from the person that they had taught it to originally. And so I think my old church was surprisingly wonderful at that. Nazareth is not going to end up this way for Jesus. We'll read more about that next time we do the book of Luke. But Jesus is here. Um, He's in his home church, you know, his home synagogue. um, And he stands up to read. Reading was part of 
the synagogue service, and then there was a sermon. So for the way this worked was for the reading, he would stand up, uh, and then for the sermon, he would sit down. Now, I always wished that I was a synagogue teacher so I can sit down for the whole sermon since I tend to preach for a really long time. I have to stand up here. Uh, but anyway, Jesus gets to sit down for this. Now, he gets up and he reads this uh, He reads this scroll. I want to say this real quick, too. This scroll was probably in Hebrew. These, these scriptures were probably in Hebrew, which means Jesus spoke Hebrew. He, or he, you know, he could read in the scriptures in Hebrew. He probably spoke day-to-day a language called Aramaic. And then he seems to quote sometimes uh, this Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which means he would have also spoke Greek. So Jesus was probably like most people back in the day, most Jewish folks back in the day, trilingual. He spoke Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Kind of cool. All right, so verse 17. So he stands up to read. Um, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. So he's given this this scroll of Isaiah. We actually have one of these complete scrolls. I think it's complete from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll put the picture of it right somewhere over there. Um, The Isaiah scroll. And so uh, Jesus was handed one of these scrolls. And he reads this quote. This quote is actually stitched together from two places in Isaiah. That's okay. This wasn't an exact quote. This was how it worked. He would have flipped around and read a few parts. Um, this scroll, it says it was given to him. We don't know if Jesus chose this passage or if this just happened to be the assigned passage. Um, you know, I don't think it matters either way, right? God is guiding history. Um, and so it says here, I love this too, that he found the place where it is written. Uh Chapters and verses didn't come till long time after this, which um, is amazing because it shows us how well some of these Jewish folks, as they were learning their Bibles, Jesus, Paul, these guys, how well they would have known the Bible to be able to find the place with no chapters or verses. Um, I have a Bible. It's actually right over there. It's the Bible, but it's broken into one, two, three, four, five, six different books. Uh, six different sections of the Bible, and it has no chapters and verses. And I tell you, I can hardly find anything in that book when I need to find it uh, without the chapters and verses. But Jesus and these guys, they knew it so well, Jesus just flips to the part where he can read verses, uh, he can read this part that we see here in verses uh, 18 and 19. It says this, so he, he gets up and this is what he reads. This is the text for his sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right, so Jesus' text for his sermon in his hometown is from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was written... Uh, by the prophet Isaiah, and it was written in, ch- in two different parts, really. So the whole beginning of the book um, is is about judgment, and this part of the book was written to the people in Isaiah's lifetime, so before the exile to Babylon. The ending, the last part of the book, is written prophetically looking forward. It's written to comfort the people in exile. So the whole first part of the book is Isaiah saying, this is why you're going to go into exile. Then once the people are in exile, the second part of the book is meant for them as as comfort. And so part of that comforting word was there's a whole bunch of stuff in that second half. You know the Isaiah 53. And a lot of these passages about the Messiah come from that comforting part of the book of Isaiah. Now, how would you... If you were writing a book to describe the Messiah, how would you write his ministry, write about his ministry? 
we would say things like, look at the language we use in American evangelicalism. He came to save me from my sins, right? Now, is that true? Well, yes, it is true. Um, But it's also not really the language that the Bible uses, right? He came to save me from my sins. Or uh, we would say things like, well, now because of the death of Jesus on the cross, I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's one of our favorites to use. But again, we don't really see the language of a personal relationship anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament. So look at how the Old Testament, this passage from Isaiah that Jesus is quoting, look at how look at the language that's used to describe the coming king, the ministry of the Messiah. So the first thing it says is that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the Messiah will be filled with the spirit. Again, empowered by the Holy Spirit perfectly. This is why Luke keeps bringing this up when he's describing the life and the ministry of Jesus. This ministry is powered by God, powered by uh, God the Holy Spirit. The second thing he says is that the Messiah will be anointed. He says, because he has anointed me, right? This is what the word Messiah actually means. The word Messiah means um, the anointed one. Anointing in the Old Testament was this process, you know, where they would take a horn full of oil and they would pour it on somebody's head. And it was a way to, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what the oil, it kind of represents the spirit, but it's kind of like, you know, what does it actually do? I don't know. What is the queen knighting somebody with a little sword, you know? What was that movie, King Ralph, where John Goodman becomes a king? He's an American who becomes a king. He's doing that thing and he cuts a guy's ear. Anyway, uh, it's like, what does that actually do? I don't know. But it makes them a knight, right? It's the same thing. Pouring the oil was this process of setting apart kings, prophets, and priests uh, were the ones who were anointed. They poured the oil and it would drip down their beards and all that stuff. And what it meant was that they were set apart by God for some sort of special service. And so what Isaiah is saying is what the others who were anointed on a smaller scale, right? The prophets, priests, and kings, those offices would be fully fulfilled in the coming Messiah. So Jesus was these things on a larger scale. All of those offices and all of those anointings point to the ultimate anointed one. Um, Three, so he's anointed. He comes to proclaim the good news um, it says, uh, he procl- uh, yeah, he's come to, he's anointed me to proclaim good news. So the Messiah didn't just come to bring the kingdom. He also came to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come. You see this with Luke's emphasis on Jesus as a preacher. What is it that he's preaching? What is it that he's proclaiming? The gospel, right? That's what that good news means. It's the word euangelion. It means, uh, that's the word we use for gospel, the good news. Mark Oops, Mark talks about this too in Mark 1. It says the the opening of Jesus's ministry. This is the first kind of part of Jesus's ministry chronologically too um, in the book of Mark. It says now, uh, Mark 1.14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So I want you to look at what Jesus actually taught. What is the good news? The good news is that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom? Who gets to be a part of the kingdom? Remember that this book was written to a guy who was probably pretty wealthy, right? Most excellent Theophilus. We don't know exactly who he was, but he was some sort of a probably Roman official, a wealthy guy. And Luke's emphasis in this entire book is that the kingdom of God is not filled with the same kind of people who run the kingdom of Rome, who run the Roman Empire, who are powerful in the world. The kingdom of God is the opposite, right? And so look what Luke says. He's uh, he's anointed me to proclaim good news. This is the fourth thing, right? To the poor. 
And so that's the first group of people that Jesus says are involved in the kingdom of God, the poor. Now, on the surface, it means poor, right? Poverty, the people who are in poverty. But there's another level here, and we'll talk about this more. It isn't just financial poverty. When the Bible talks about the poor, it just means all sorts of people on the bottom of society, right? The outcasts, the last ones that you would expect to be the focus of the ministry of the Spirit-filled Messiah. And then that leads us to the next idea. Look at the fifth idea. So he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and then he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So remember the context of the book of Isaiah that Jesus here now is reading. The context is that this was comforting words to people who had been taken captive by the Babylonians and um, were part of the exile and were hoping to return home someday. And so uh, the original audience would have loved this phrase that 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 uh, freedom from captivity was part of God's plan. And that was a huge theme in the prophets, that the captives would get to go home. Uh, The sixth theme here that Jesus talks about is that uh, the sight to the blind, right? So um, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. So I'll tell you a story. Um, I I think I've told this before. I don't know. When I was a kid, I used to get poison oak. My parent, my grandparents lived in um, Santa Cruz. There's a lot of poison oak in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, they had a ranch down there. And we used to go play in the forest and I would get poison oak. And I remember one time getting poison oak. And what happened was, like, I've literally had poison oak head to toe. Like, my entire body covered in poison oak. Um, I've been in the hospital because of poison oak. Had to get shots, that sort of stuff. Because they were worried about my breathing. All sorts of, it's crazy. I used to get it so bad. And one time I remember getting poison oak. And it was all over my whole face. I couldn't go to school uh, because it was so gross. And uh, I woke up one day and I couldn't open my eye. And I thought, huh, that's weird. And so I went and I looked in the mirror. You know, I think I was like seven or eight. And I went and I looked in the mirror of the bathroom. And the poison oak at night had spread over my eye and crusted my entire eye closed. And so I thought, wow, that's a huge bummer. So then the next night I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and I couldn't open my other eye either. And so... Uh, I remember screaming and my mom coming down, you know, I was a pretty little kid. And so they actually took me back to Santa Cruz because my parents both had full-time jobs and that sort of stuff. And my grandparents took care of me. And I think I was down there two or three weeks uh, without being able to see. And let me tell you, just two, three weeks of being blind was brutal. Being blind, I know people like get used to it. or I don't know. It was awful. I, it was horrible. And so just the idea of being blind, I really under, I really understand what Jesus is saying here. He gives sight to the blind. If that was my whole life and then all of a sudden I had sight, it would be an absolute game changer. I couldn't even imagine how good that must have felt. Um, The thing is, people in this world are not supposed to be blind, right? We were not created with blindness. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And so when we're going to read stories of Jesus um, giving sight, literally giving sight to blind people, and what we're going to say is, that he's giving glimpses of how the world is supposed to be. And that also leads us to the seventh thing, right? He's also, so he's giving sight to the blind to set set at liberty those who are oppressed. So we live in a world of oppressed people, all kinds of oppression, right? Sexual slavery, economic oppression, racial injustice. But again, this is like with the blindness, this stuff, this oppression is not the way the world is supposed to be. And this kind of reminds me, this work of the Messiah here to 
um, set the oppressed free reminds me of my favorite historical person, right? Harriet Tubman. If you have not read a biography of Harriet Tubman, you need to go do that at some point. Go find a biography. The movie was pretty good, but her actual, like they changed a few details. Her real story is absolutely fascinating. Um, she's a, she was an extremely godly woman and I can't wait to meet her someday, but this is what she did because this is what the kingdom of God looks like, right? Is setting the oppressed free. And then the eighth thing uh, that Jesus talks about to describe the kingdom of God, the work of the Messiah, is verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the background to this, that's a phrase that anybody at this time would have understood. The background to this is the year of Jubilee. So this comes from Leviticus 25, and here's the idea. And as part of the law of God, God said that every seven cycles of Sabbath years, which means seven times seven, so every 49 years, the nation of the people of God were supposed to celebrate what was called the year of Jubilee. And that involved um, all debts would, were to be forgiven, all land to be restored to the original families who owned that land, uh, slaves who were in slavery because of debt were to be liberated. Uh, there were, were all sorts of things, right? To sort of, it's kind of like resetting the people of God. Here's the deal, though. There's no evidence that the Israelites ever actually did it, that they ever actually celebrated the year of Jubilee. And so Jesus uses this imagery. imagery. Remember how it's uh, supposed to be, right, with this with this reset and this clean slate. That's what the reign of the Messiah King is going to look like. Okay, so this is the eight things Jesus quotes from Isaiah to describe the uh, the ministry of the Messiah. But here's the thing. There's levels to this prophecy. So here's the question, right? Are these spiritual poor or are these actual poor people? Are they spiritually captive? Or are they real actual captives? Are they spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed in need of jubilee, or actual blind and oppressed people? And so on one side, we have commentators who say, no, 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 this is mostly this is spiritual stuff, right? This is kind of the more conservative evangelical answer to this. He's not come to really heal the blind, but the spiritually blind. And I'm like, well, just a few chapters, he heals some blind people, right? But then on the other side, there's commentators who say, no, 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 he's just talking about uh, actual blindness, actual poverty, things in this world right now. That's sort of the more theologically liberal answer, I guess you would say. So who's right? Well, what we're going to talk about at the end of the sermon is that both are right. Right, how there's different levels to this prophecy. We'll get to that in just a sec. All right, verse 20. So he reads this passage, and he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, uh, and he sat down. And uh, you guys hear Izzy screaming? Anyway, uh, back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he, he rolls up the scroll, he finishes his reading, and then he sits down into the position of the teacher. For us, we would say he stands behind the pulpit. And everyone is on the edge of their pews, right? They've heard about Jesus. They know he's sort of the native son, and he's now he's famous all throughout the region of Galilee. And he preaches this sermon now, which is significantly shorter than any sermon I've ever preached. Um, verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus now, in front of his home church, he claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the promised king. This is huge. The people of Israel, like we talked about all in the birth narrative, have been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to show up. And Jesus shows up. He reads this passage from Isaiah, and then he teaches one of the shortest sermons ever. It was probably, this is a summary. It was probably longer than that. But he, and basically what he says is, I am the Messiah. 
The kingdom of God is at hand, right, is how it's put in Mark. He's preaching the gospel, the good news, that the kingdom of God has come, but not in its fullness yet. Because here's the thing. Whoop, dropped my iPad. Here's the thing. Any astute, uh, you know, um, biblical scholar, you know, like a lot of these people in that time would have been, would have noticed something. He didn't read the whole passage from Isaiah. Right? He read part of a passage from Isaiah. Let me read to you the whole passage and show you what's happening here. So this is Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stopped, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But look at the end of verse 2. This is what it says. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Did you see that? Did you see what Jesus left out? He left out this sentence. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn. Why? Because the, when we talk about prophecy in the Old Testament, we, uh, one of the analogies that theologians use is the prophetic peaks, we call it. So if you're standing and um, you're looking at a mountain range and there's a whole bunch of mountains, you only see the peaks of those mountains. You don't see the valleys between them. And as you look at them, they look like they're right next to each other, even though they could be pretty far apart because of your vantage point. So for the prophets, that, that's how they looked at the future when they were predicting the future. They saw the peaks, but they didn't always see the valleys. And so... Uh, um, Jesus is explaining that this prophecy is coming in two sections. There are two peaks to this prophecy from Isaiah. There's the whole first part, and then there's the second part. Right? Jesus breaks it up into these two peaks. First, the first peak is the stuff that he read. The kingdom of God is now inaugurated. The kingdom has begun with the first coming of Jesus. But at the second coming, the kingdom is going to be consummated. It's going to be fully realized. At that time, Jesus will return and he will judge the world. He will rid the world of sin completely and he will bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so where are we now? This is, I've talked about this before, but we're in what's called the already but not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully here, right? And so we can see that in the way that Jesus presents uh, the gospel is uh, he, he starts and he just talks about all this stuff that happens at the first coming of Jesus, right? At, at his first coming, at the inauguration of the kingdom. But he leaves the second part. He leaves the judgment because that's coming at the second uh, coming of Christ. And so what you see here is that uh, the Lord, where uh, he's in the synagogue in his hometown and he reads this passage, and as he describes the gospel, his language is very different from the language that we use to describe the gospel. He's not talking about the kingdom of God the way that we always do. And so, right, that's our tie back to the introduction, right, the Twitter gospel. We're an evangelical church, which basically means we love the Bible, we love the gospel story. But here's the issue. I think we really have Twittered the gospel, right? We've taken this grand story about the kingdom of God, and we've tried to just cram it into a few lines. I'll give you sort of some background and some history. So a lot of this goes back to the Reformation, which is one of my favorite 
periods of time to study. I love reading about, especially one guy named John Calvin. I love reading about him and his ministry and his life and his work. Um, but the Reformation's big thing was what we call justification by faith alone. That we are saved by the grace of God alone and the work of God alone. We're given credit for Jesus' life and death, and he uh, takes the punishment and the wrath of God for our sin. We call that justification by faith alone. It just And we receive that through faith, not through anything that we do. And so that was not that it was lost in the church, because there were other parts, there were people in church history who were continually teaching that in the Middle Ages and stuff, but it had mostly been lost by the time of the Reformation. And so there was this sort of this re-sparking of that aspect of the gospel. Then you jump forward now to Western society changed by American individualism. And what we've done as a society, as a Western society, especially in America, is we've moved everything from an us to a me, right? So a lot of societies around the world are more communally oriented than we are, but we are very individualistic. And like right now, the big example, we see this with masks. I can't go to Costco without a mask. That's my rights and blah, blah, blah. You know, these idiots on uh, you know, Reddit or whatever, right? Screaming and getting arrested because they refuse to wear a mask because I don't care if that person dies if it mildly inconveniences me because we're so self-centered with American individualism. And what we've done is we've taken the individualism of America and we've taken the stuff in the gospel and that's just about me. And we've said, that's the whole gospel. So we've taken justification by faith, which is one of the greatest truths in human history, right? And But we've made that the whole gospel because that's the part that's about me. And so like just some examples of how this happens, right? If we, When we look at texts like this, and as I read commentaries, we over-spiritualize these texts. And people say, like I said, this is all about the spiritually blind, the spiritual captives, because all of that stuff is about me. I'm not blind. I'm not oppressed. I'm not poor. So how does this really affect me? Or another like example of how this works is you might know Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws um, from Campus Crusade. Um, I think they changed the name of Campus Crusade. Crew? Is that the same thing? Anyway, um, so here's the four laws, right, which was a huge evangelism tool over the last, I don't know how many years, 50 years or something like that. Um, But here's the four laws. The first law is this. Listen to this. God loves you and created you to know him personally. Second law, man is sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. Three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone can we know God personally and experience God's love. And then the fourth one, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord, and we can know God personally and experience his love. Right? Do you see how man-centered the four spiritual laws are? Bill Bright took a lot of these truths. Nothing in there is false. Nothing in that uh, is wrong. But you see the emphasis is on me. And this also sort of spills over into this one of the reasons I hated taking our youth group kids when I was a youth pastor to camp, because this is what they did. How many times, you know, there's that book, Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart, where kids have to walk the aisle and we tug on emotions and do all this stuff because everything's about you and you and you, and we're not inviting them to be part of a wider story. I'll give you one more example. Um, At my old church, there was a lady who I was friends with, and um, one day we were out walking and... uh, we, I don't remember the exact story. Somehow we bumped into somebody on the street and we started a conversation and um, we invited her back to church and she had some needs. I think she needed some food or you know something like that. And so we gave her a Safeway 
uh, we used to keep these Safeway gift cards at church that we would give to homeless folks and that sort of thing. And uh, we sit her down, and I was pretty young. I don't even remember if at this point I was on staff yet. I, I don't think I was. Um, and so um, this woman from church, also not a staff person, just somebody from church, um, sits her down and starts talking to her and uh, basically goes through Bill Bright's four points, not exactly. And this woman sat there, and she prayed the sinner's prayer, you know. And then she walked away and left with her Safeway card. And I remember thinking to myself, that woman would have said anything to get out of there with that Safeway card. And what we did was we just did the bare minimum to try to get this lady to pray this prayer uh, and accept the Lord, and that was the end of it. We, we didn't invite her to be a part of this grand narrative. We didn't follow up with any sort of discipleship, right? But that's a very American sort of way to do evangelism. And in all of this, do you see what we've missed? We've made the gospel about me and about my story. How can I be saved? What is God's plan for my life? But here's the thing. The gospel is so much more than that. The gospel's main character is Jesus, not you. The gospel is the story of the servant king who is establishing his rule in a world that has rebelled against him. And so my favorite way to tell the story is with those four narratives, right? Creation, God created the world perfectly. Fall, the world fell and rebelled against him in sin. Redemption, which is the story of Israel culminating in Jesus and the work on the cross where uh, the price is paid and the world um, is put right. And then restoration is where the world is put right and God puts everything back together. Now, you see, our justification by faith alone is a part of that story. It's a huge part of that story, but it's not the only part of that story, right? Like, imagine there's an 18-year-old in World War II who gets drafted, and, you know, he's just out of high school, and I don't know, he was the football captain or something, you know, kind of a popular kid, or I don't know, he's a punk, right? Arrogant, young, 18-year-old punk. He heads off to war, and he sees some things that no 18-year-old should ever have to see. And the war changes him. It humbles him. It gives him a sense of perspective. He somehow manages to survive, and he's grateful for that. And he comes back from the war, and nobody recognizes him. He's a completely different man. You know, he's a man now, right? Now, imagine if somebody asked him, sat him down and asked him years later as an old man, tell me the story of World War II, right? Tell me all about World War II. And what he says is, oh, that's about, World War II is about how I became a better person. Well, we would say, uh, okay, but isn't there more to the war than that? Wasn't it also about the liberation of Europe and the, the freeing of the captives from the concentration camps and, you know, the, 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 the defeat of the Nazis? Well, yeah, it was all about that stuff, but it was mainly about me becoming a better person, right? What we see here is Jesus describing in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus describing the work of the Messiah, describing the kingdom of God. And the main theme of the book of Luke is this upside down kingdom. It's such a bigger story than how do I get saved, right? It's the story of the upside down kingdom, outsiders in, bottom to the top, sickness is defeated, the king the king humbles himself and he serves and he dies. It's all upside down. The kingdom of God is how the servant king, how he establishes his rule on earth and he puts things back the way that they were always meant to be, right? So the ministry of Jesus, as we read this book, what it's going to be about is glimpses of what this will look like in eternity when it's perfect. So it's begun here, but it's not perfected here. It won't be until the second coming with the complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so what does this then mean for us? We aren't trying... 
when we evangelize and when we share the faith, we aren't trying to trick people into praying a prayer that's about them and their personal salvation. Although we are trying to invite people to be saved. But when we live spirit-empowered lives, when we love people and we live these godly lives and the people around us see that, then what we're doing is we're inviting them into this grand story of God. We're inviting them to repent of sin and to surrender their lives to the king who is putting the whole world back together, whose death and resurrection has cosmic consequences that includes their salvation, but also includes so much more, right? We're inviting them to turn from being a slave to sin, right, to being a servant or a slave of the Savior, to be adopted by God and to be brought into the family, into this upside down kingdom. And so for our church and our little church plant here to succeed in this city And by succeed, what I mean is to become a real light in a city of darkness. We need to have a real firm grasp on what the kingdom of God really is. What it means for the kingdom of God to come to San Francisco is not to walk around and be individualistic and trick people into praying some sort of a sinner's prayer, but to invite them into the grand story of God. And so we have to understand the whole gospel, not just the part that's about me and my salvation. And so we're going to talk about this a lot in the kingdom, um, as we read the book of Luke. But the way, um, that's actually where I'm going to end. Uh, what I want to do now to end the sermon is uh, I'm going to play a video. See, that, what, this is one of the things I love about um, doing these video sermons, I guess. You know, I mostly hate this, but... Um, <laughs> One of the things that's great is I can do stuff like this. So I'm going to play a video from the Bible Project called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And uh, this is how we're just going to kind of end the sermon. I want you to watch this video and just sort of soak in what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and how that relates to the gospel.